Some folks don't stop till they find the truth. June's Journey is a roaring 20s murder mystery hidden object game. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android or iOS devices and on PC through Facebook games. And what we've got to do is update our thinking, update the arrangements, update the institutions. I call this World Order 2.0. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in New York today, and I'm joined by Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations and author of A World in Disarray, American Foreign Policy and the Crisis of the Old Order, uh, which was released on January 10th. Thank you to our listeners who continue to tune in each week. If you have any great suggestions on episode ideas or feedback, send them our way at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. We'll be sending five mugs out each week to those of you with the best ideas. Recently, from CFR's studio in Manhattan, we had the following conversation. So, congratulations on the book. Um, it seems brilliantly well-timed. Uh, but but let me let me test that theory a little bit because you know the world's in disarray all the time you know I mean there was as you remember in your youth the Thirty Years War um, ouch <laughs> there, there, you know there's been war and conflict or the threat of war throughout our lives what makes this particular period um, unnervingly in disarray uh, from your perspective well first of all thank you for having me. Yes, there's always a degree of disorder. The world is never perfectly uh, structured and peaceful and the like. But like everything else in life, it's a question of degree. So for most of my life, for four decades, there was the Cold War. And that was quite a structured, as you know, international system. So though we lived with this existential threat, it was quite, except maybe for 10 days in October 1962, it was quite removed from the day-to-day, and the superpowers had understandings between them, which limited not simply their direct competition, but also their indirect competition, because they were so afraid that events could ultimately bring them into conflict, which could escalate to the nuclear realm. So that was a fairly structured international system. I would not say disarray for the most part. Uh, there were problems, but again, uh, not systemic. For the last 25 years, the United States has enjoyed tremendous advantages. And again, I'm not saying the world was perfectly peaceful. You had at the beginning of this era the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. You had 9-11 and so forth. But again, I would not exaggerate the degree of disorder. What seems to me different and qualitatively different now are several things. One is you've had a marked deterioration in U.S. relations with with Russia, lesser extent with uh, China. You've got new realms of international relations, such as cyberspace, where there simply aren't elaborated uh, rules. You mentioned, uh, unfairly, I would point out, uh, my personal experience with the 30 years (laughs) war in in Europe. But look, what's going on in the Middle East now looks all too similar. Again, Middle East has had wars periodically. Its history has been punctuated with them, but never anything like this in number or scale or duration or the quality of the the wars. You've got Europe, which for most of your life and mine had the distinction of essentially being the most boring part of the world, highly integrated economically. The whole European project was designed to make conflict on a large scale unthinkable. Well, look at Europe now. With Brexit in the works, 
the entire European project, I think, is in some doubt. You've uh, got Russia violating borders with, uh, with, with military force in, in Ukraine. You've got nationalism and populist movements throughout. So suddenly Europe looks much less predictable. Asia, you, you don't simply have a rising China, but you've also got a, a North Korea armed to the teeth conventionally, but also with nuclear weapons and increasingly medium and potentially long-range ballistic missiles. Uh, you've got everything from the South Sudan and, and Africa to Venezuela in our own hemisphere. So I realize I'm focusing on the negative. I'm not pointing out pockets or areas or domains of, of relative calm and stability. But I am struck by the sheer number of, of problems uh, out there, both the regional and, and, and global level. Do you see the U.S. election as significant of some of these changes? I think the U.S. campaign and now the transition have contributed to it a little bit. The fact that the one thing all three major candidates in the sense of Senator Sanders, Secretary Clinton, and Donald Trump agreed on was their opposition to free trade in the case of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which again has been one of the the building blocks of the post-World War II uh, order. I think that has contributed to it both symbolically. It shows that the old givens aren't necessarily given, but also in this case, it left a lot of countries out there high and dry who had been counting on us. I think some of uh, Mr. Trump's statements, both during the campaign and during the transition, whether it was questioning the one China policy, raising issues about alliances, I think the overall impact of these things has been to, has been that more is up for grabs. And whether countries liked us or disliked us, many of them have gauged their own policies premised on a degree of American predictability. And I think what this has told them is that, gee, the United States we thought we knew is not exactly the United States that now exists, and that the, the assumptions we had may not be uh, operative to the extent we, we thought. So, yes, I do think the, the campaign and the transition have raised questions about whether the basic contours of American foreign policy are necessarily going to continue. So, you know, one of the things that I sometimes hear that's akin to this is, is people saying, you know, we're coming to the end of the age of globalization, right? Although my view is globalization is history, right? This is, this is what the planet does. But we do seem to be coming to a bit of a, of a crisis or a fork in the road with regard to attitudes towards it. Mm-hmm. And when I look at the U.S. election and I look at Brexit and I look at what's happened as far away as the Philippines and, 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 and some other parts of the world, is that there is a kind of a reaction, which may in fact be, not be a reaction to globalization. It may be closer to, I, I think, what you're talking about, which is that the institutions that we have don't seem to be working in the context of this era, and we don't seem to have leadership or ideas that address the real issues, whether those issues are uh, changing nature of whether how jobs are created or how economies grow or how threats are addressed, et cetera. I mean, this seems to me to be consistent with the thesis of the book, but I just, I, I just thought maybe you could elaborate a little. Well, at the risk of agreeing with you on something, David, I agree with the notion that globalization is reality. And countries are limited in their ability to, to wall it off, literally and figuratively. So yes, you can do certain things about building barriers against imports or barriers against people. You can't build barriers against climate change. Very difficult to build barriers against uh, ideas. No country is an economic autarky, 
every country has to import and export to some extent. You can't build barriers against uh, viruses like a Zika or an Ebola. So globalization, the degree you are open to globalization can change, can be dialed up or down. But, I, but globalization itself is a, a powerful reality. Indeed, it's one of the drivers of, of disarray. And coming back to your, your follow-on point, I think it's fair to say that whether domestically or internationally, we haven't kept up. I actually think one of the real emerging issues, and it's something I'm not an expert on, is this question of the disappearance of work. Not because of globalization, by the way, directly, but more simply productivity improvements, technology, innovation. And you know, in our own country, millions of jobs will disappear in a generation that people who drive trucks and cars, and Uber and things like it may be short-lived phenomena. Uh, we'll have other jobs disappearing as we've seen really for generations because of technology associated with manufacturing. Now, other jobs may come into existence, and I don't know what the churn will be. It's quite possible, though, that many of the jobs coming into existence may require more demanding educational levels and training, and that's something we're going to have to gear up for as a, uh, as a society and as an, uh, as an economy. And internationally, uh, again, I think our machinery isn't quite up to it. We've had you know, the G7, G8, G20, G this, G that, but many of these mechanisms aren't up to the, the task. The UN Security Council clearly isn't. In areas we already alluded to cyber, there really aren't very many rules. It's kind of the Wild West with very few laws and uh, no obvious sheriff. Our trading mechanisms are falling short. People are increasingly, they've rejected the new global round, the Doha round, they've, they've TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, looks to be dead. And in virtually every other realm, say, take proliferation. We have all sorts of things in place to try to prevent proliferation. Virtually no rules in place of what to do if and when proliferation happens. So in many cases, yeah, I think there's a shortfall between what exists out there and the challenges coming at us. And one of my pet peeves, I got a lot of pet peeves, but one of them is this phrase, international community because it suggests that there's a greater degree of international consensus of what to do about these global issues than, in fact, there is. In virtually every area, there isn't an international community, or it's narrow and shallow. So this idea that the world really is positioned to deal with all these challenges, uh, alas, is simply not true. Well, I think that, I mean, it's a very interesting question, by the way. This question of what is a community, how are communities formed? They used to be geographically bound. Mm -hmm. Now they're, that's changing, and, and one is able to form communities that are virtual and disconnected from geography. Um, which gets into a kind of a broader thing. And actually, the, the book that I'm currently working on, which is a, a sort of a cousin of what you're talking about, takes, as you do, a historical view and sort of says that every so often in history, there comes a moment where because of technological change and social change, institutions and belief systems are left behind. And there's a there's a kind of a, a disruptive moment where we sort of have to they have to catch up, and it doesn't happen that often. You might say the last big time it happened was at the end of the Second World War. You might even go back further to the mid 19th century, 1848, and the the big changes associated with the Industrial Revolution and so forth. The Reformation is another moment when well, you were there for that. That one. was the, yeah, yeah. No, I was in high school, but yes, but but the but but the whole issue is. You know, the, the, it calls for a kind of creativity. And one of the things that I think is really important about your book, and I think um, is exactly right, is that we're at kind of one of those present at the creation moments. And, you know, I think it's appropriate. We're sitting here at the CFR, and so many of the people who were involved in that process 
70-ish years ago, you know, rose to a challenge. And they said, we need new institutions. We need them domestically. Next year's, well, actually, it's this year, is the 70th anniversary of the National Security Act of 1947, something celebrated possibly only at foreign policy and at the CFR. <laughs> but, 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 it's but, a low-key celebration. Very low-key celebration. But, you know, where we created our own international institutions, whether it was the Department mm-hmm. of Defense or the CIA or the National Security Council, plus... NATO, plus the World Trade Organization, plus the EU, plus all of these things came in the wake of the Second World War, and they've all hit retirement age. They haven't been kept up to date. They haven't been, and, and, and it's sort of, you know, we need a new set, both to update these, but also to deal with the gaps you've talked about, whether it's transnational spread of diseases or climate change or cyber, where we just don't even have... Uh, any kind of international understandings, et cetera. Um, not to mention to reflect the changing power structure that exists in the world under, underlying that. Your book's really good on this, and I think it talks about some prescriptions. Maybe you could share some of those. Well, again, at the risk of being in violent agreement with you. Uh, this I is what people expect of the Eastern foreign policy <laughs> establishment. Anyway, okay. in that case, so we're sitting in the basement of the CFR agreeing with each other. There we go. Uh, no, there is this gap between the challenges and the arrangements and institutions. And as you say, I think the last great international moment was after World War II. And Atchison's memoir is aptly uh, titled. It was present at the creation, and you had ideas, and then people acted on the ideas. It was both. It was both conceptual and operational. It was a remarkable coming together from NATO to the various international economic uh, institutions, things like the Marshall Plan, it's really quite a, an extraordinary bunch of people, policies, ideas, you name it. Now we need something like it, because as you say, the current, the current arrangement has, a, for, not entirely, but too much for comfort run its course. And some, some of these institutions need to be adapted, some need to be adapted. In some cases, you just need new institutions. We need things for, for dealing with, with cyber. In other cases, uh, well, climate change, well, this didn't exist as a public policy issue 25 years ago. 30 years ago. Paris, I thought, was a creative idea, not as big an idea as its advocates would suggest, but the idea that rather than having a top-down international arrangement where you get tremendous pushback, because who would decide on what each country's quota or burden would be? Instead, you you work from the bottom up, and countries essentially set for themselves goals in the area of uh, putting ceilings on on various types of uh, emissions. They would then also do a pledging process in order to provide money for other countries to adapt. I actually think as a model of modern multilateralism, that's actually a creative idea, and that could have broader application to to other realms of international uh, relations. We're seeing it, for example, in the, the financial sector, and you could have race to the tops in some of these areas. More broadly, what I've tried to develop in the book is, and again, it's it's consistent with what you're saying, is that for three or four hundred years, the world has operated on what I called World Order 1.0. And it was a big innovation in stance. I'm not going to denigrate it. It was a big idea, which is the idea of sovereignty. And that countries ought not to ignore borders, ought not to try to change them forcibly, and respect what goes on within the borders of their neighbors. That became the province of a sovereign entity. And after a lot of the Middle Ages, this was a major innovation uh, and contribution to international order, because it meant you didn't have nonstop intervention. 
There were accepted, literally and figuratively, borders. And the problem with all that is not that it's a bad idea. It's an essential idea. And we saw when Saddam invaded Kuwait or, or Russia acted against Ukraine, we saw what happens when that principle is violated. It's a disaster. But to use the old saw, it, it's necessary but not sufficient. And in an age of globalization, what we've learned the hard way, or just a fact, is that what goes on inside virtually any country ends up not being its business alone. If there's some poultry in a backyard in Indonesia and it's not dealt with properly, suddenly you get a virus which could, could cause a global pandemic. Or if certain countries are wedded to coal-burning plants to produce electricity, that's going to contribute to climate change not simply pollution, but climate change, and you could be half a world away from them, you could, be, you could pay a price as water levels rise. A terrorist, uh, or some young, even before someone becomes a terrorist, some young man or woman goes to a school, gets a terrible education, gets indoctrinated, and one way or another, just makes the career choice to be a terrorist, and suddenly they then get on some airplane and travel somewhere. They learn their trade. They go to terrorism graduate school in a place like Syria or Afghanistan. Then they return home and we all pay an enormous uh, price for it. So what we've learned is that a world based upon respect for sovereignty is simply, that, that's not adequate anymore. And what we've got to do is update our thinking, update the arrangements, update the institutions. I call this World Order 2.0 to basically take into account that virtually nothing is local anymore. And states... And sovereign states don't simply have rights, they've got to have obligations. They've got to have obligations to police their own territory so activities don't take place within it, which could have dire consequences for people who live out, outside their, their borders. That's a different idea, it's a big idea. I can understand all the problems with, with getting it accepted or embraced widely, but we'd better start working on that idea or what I call disarray has the potential to grow into anarchy or chaos. And as dangerous as this situation is, it doesn't take a brilliant imagination to imagine it getting it even worse. Well, you know, and I, I again, in, in what is becoming a tedious theme here, agree with you and, and think that, you know, I made the joking reference to the 30 years war, but the reality is that period which, which, which involved the, the Reformation, the rise of the nation state, uh, because economies were organizing themselves as nation states, uh, allowed those states to break away from the church, allowed those states to operate on their own economies, have their own churches, led to this idea of national sovereignty and the Treaty of Westphalia and everything, which is what you were referring to. And that worked for a while. And that it may well be that at some point we look back and we look back at not just the last 75 years, but almost the last 100 years as a period where we start to recognize that many of those sovereign principles need to shift to a global stage. The false start of the League of Nations, then with the United Nations and, and so forth, it was to start recognizing that the global commons mm -hmm. requires some kind of operation. But we're still at a moment where if you go and you say, we need to cede a little bit of sovereignty upwards, it's politically deadly. And in fact, the incoming president of the United States hates the UN, wants, you know, we'll talk about defunding it, we'll get back into the old argument. We've seen German politicians who said we need to, you know, be more, you know, multilateralized, knocked out of office too. It's not just in the United States. Um, and so this seems to be one of the contradictions of the moment, is that nationalism and anti-multilateralism seems to be on the rise. But it seems to me that may well be reaction. It may be a last gasp effort to hold on to the old system 
while we come to grips with the reality that we need stronger multilateral mechanisms. Agree, disagree? And the honest answer is I don't know. I think you're right that you're seeing pushback populism nationally, whether it's in Europe against Brussels or in lots of countries, including this one, against elements of uh, globalization. To be called a globalist now, as I often am, is, has be suddenly become pejorative uh, for, for what it's worth. I want to come back to something then we talked about a few minutes ago, which is the Paris Agreement. What I like about it, again, is not that it solves or even meaningfully addresses the climate change problem. In many cases, it doesn't. But it seems to take into account the nationalism of the era. So rather than imposing uh, a global mechanism, be it a single tax on carbon, so-called cap-and-trade market system, it, it works with nationalism. It essentially accepts the province of the nation-state to make its own decisions. And it tries to encourage what it considers to be desirable behaviors. But at the end of the day, the United States or China or anyone else sets its own ceilings and does its best to live up to them. And if it doesn't live up to them, it may get named and shamed, doesn't get sanctioned, doesn't get attacked by anybody else. I'm, in, I'm intrigued by that model of, of multilateralism. It's still multilateral. And I think in a global world, you've got to have multilateral arrangements. But I'm intrigued by multilateral arrangements that leave a little bit more of the province for decision-making to the individual uh, entity. Another thing you're going to want to do with multilateralism is bring in entities other than nation states. You can't, for example, talk about cyber governance without Apple and Facebook and Microsoft and some others in the room. They, or you can't talk about global health uh, without the pharmace- pharmaceutical companies uh, in the room. And you can't talk about security without groups like Medicine Sans Frontières or the International Rescue Committee, whatever, without them in the room. Now, the UN, the UN isn't made for that. So what you end up with is a form of ad hocery. And you, well, I think years ago I came up with the phrase, unless somebody else did, and I'm not aware of it, of coalitions of the willing. But what you do is you cobble together arrangements to deal with specific problems. Now, if you've got a good set of arrangements and you've got some, and you've got some actors who are willing and able to live by them, then you can institutionalize it. And that we might be in a transitional phase where we had arrangements based upon the post-World War II problems, where nation states were the principal actors. And we, we may look back on this era, and this kind of gets back to your question, where we have new institutions or arrangements, maybe less formal, with lots of different kinds of actors, not simply nation states, regional organizations, global organizations, private companies, uh, NGOs, what have you, and dealing with this new set of issues, which seem to be the, the defining issues of this era of, of international relations, quite possible. And that's a whole set of changes. By the, by the way, you know, the, the advantage of doing this particular podcast is it's the only one out there with an audience that's nerdy enough. <laughs> 60,000 foreign policy nerds <laughs> who go, oh, multilateralism, let's, let's go deeper. Let's get, let's get deeper into that. Um, and I'm, I'm going to respond to their desire to get a little bit deeper. I don't deeper. think five mugs will be enough if in that I, case. No, no, well, no, there's an unlimited demand for the mugs. We've hit the limit to five a week. Um, um, uh, as it is, but but there's another thing about Paris which I think makes it worth talking about. I agree with everything that you've said, but Paris was also part of a process where the torch was being passed, un, 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 unwillingly in some cases, unwittingly in some cases, from a world order that was driven by the Atlantic Alliance to a world order where the Pacific was playing a bigger role. And what we realized in the run-up to Paris 
was, and from Copenhagen actually on, was that China and India said this process will go as fast as we want it to go, and you know I call it the uh, summer camp hike syndrome, which is we discovered that the <laughs> slowest kid on the hike sets the pace of the whole whole group on their hike in summer camp, and the Chinese and the Indians sort of said. You know, we are going to go slow. But, but I think they also have the advantage of being 1.3 billion people each. The slowest kid would have to be the son of the head counselor. Well, exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. But 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 so here we are in some in in a, in a you know there are multiple changes here, right? There's economic changes. There's technological changes. Yep. There's the the obsolescence of the institutions. There's also geopolitical changes, and the the center of economic gravity has shifted from the Atlantic to the Pacific, and the center of political gravity is shifting. And typically, when that's happened in the past, as it did from Europe to the U.S., the center of intellectual gravity shifts also. And when that happens, it means the new ideas come out of there. So the the, the present at the creation ideas were largely, not exclusively, but largely driven by the U.S. We're now entering an era where there are going to be some other actors. How does it change this 2.0 vision when some of the louder voices are Chinese or Indian or other? Well, my view is they have to be brought into the process of creating and articulating and elaborating what we mean by World Order 2.0. So we can't, we're not in a position to impose it on them. This is not going to be a made in America world order. It's certainly not going to be an Atlantic world order. As you know better than anybody, the, the share of GDP that the United States and Europe have is, is, is going down. Uh, the share, obviously, of Asia and the rest is, is going up. As a side of comment, I actually think the Atlantic era of American foreign policy is ending simply because, among other things, many of the principal challenges will be elsewhere, but also I don't believe the European countries, by and large, individually or collectively, will be able and willing partners uh, for working with the United States around the world. It's not also clear what we, the United States, are going to be prepared to do. Uh, so, yeah, I think there is going to have to be uh, adjustments. As I said, we ought to bring the Chinese, the Indians, and others. It's one of the reasons I had a little bit of trouble years ago with the phrase responsible stakeholder for China. It sounded too much like we were asking them to join this quote-unquote system. I want to work with them on developing it. Now, there might be areas where we can't agree, and we're going to have to think about what do, we, what do we do then if the Chinese or the Indians or others have a very different idea about what ought to be the rules or what they're prepared to do either to support the rules or to deal with, with violations of the... Uh, but this, this ought to be now the creative effort. If I were uh, you know, advising people in the government, I would basically say this ought to now be, become part of your regular consultations. So when policy planning staffs meet around the world, when the Secretary of State or the National Security Advisor go, go over, overseas, this now want to become part and parcel. So they don't just deal with the, the crisis du jour. That's, that's firefighting. What we've got to deal a little bit, I guess to, to press the analogy way back, is, is with land management. We've got to get bigger than simply firefighting or we're, we're going to be consumed by the sheer number of fires, which is what's happening now. So I actually think part of diplomacy now has to be geared towards exactly what you and I are talking about. And it won't be easy to discipline that. There's that old saw in the business world that the urgent tends to crowd out the important. I think the danger for people who are Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, National Security Advisor, what have you, and their foreign counterparts is that the urgent crowds out the important. 
And I'm not saying the urgent isn't important, but my point is simply they've got to spend some time on the architecture. They've got to spend some time on these larger rules, on transitioning the world, so the gap between the challenges and the arrangements doesn't continue to grow. Well, there's also a risk associated with that, and that is that, and we're seeing it, for example, in cyber really clearly. We don't have doctrine. We don't have structure. So we have attacks, and then we ad hoc responses to those attacks. And and typically in this administration, for example, what we've tried to do is avoid it. Mm -hmm. You know, North Korea attacks and the president fumbles for word, ultimately comes up with vandalism so that he doesn't actually have to respond in a serious way to what was actually a physical attack on a U.S. company in a major U.S. city. The Russia hack, which was clearly a big deal in terms of the last election, President Obama dragged his feet in responding to that, again, because there was no playbook. If you don't have a strategic view, though, what you end up doing is responding case by case without any kind of pattern. Mm -hmm. And so let's put you in this position of saying, okay, you're now giving advice to an incoming administration. Mm -hmm. What kind of principles ought to be guiding what they're doing first? And and then what I'd like to talk about is maybe what are a couple of priorities. In cyber more broadly? More broadly. Okay, well, first of all, this, let me just make 10 second aside for your business and mine. This is an area where outsiders have a, a role to play. In government, based on my experience, and I expect yours, you're often so busy with the inbox, it's often hard to get out ahead of issues like this. And this is an area where outsiders could actually make a difference. I, for example, here at the Council on Foreign Relations, we've made this area of cyber a real priority, probably starting five or six years ago, and to try to develop the vocabulary and to think about what are what are the rules, what ought to be encouraged or permissible? What ought to be discouraged? What, To use your phrase, what ultimately ought to become the policy playbook? You don't have to respond in kind. If there's a cyber attack, no one said you can only respond with cyber. Maybe on some occasions you use sanctions. Maybe in some occasions you use cyber. Maybe in some occasions you use military force. What have you. But we need to think through first what are the behaviors, policies we want to encourage? What, what are the norms, the rules we want to see respected around uh, or what interests are we trying to protect here? In the case of cyber, it might be free movement of ideas. It might be not to do things you know, that threaten the other country's you know, economic infrastructure. Or, that, or, to make, or to understand what exactly, if you do X, that would be considered an act of war. You should understand if you are prepared to do this, you have therefore done the same as if you would use military force to attack an American city. And we have the full panoply of responses to return with. I, mean, I, th- I think that's the sort of thing we have to do. But in each case, we've got to think about, I think you got to begin with what are the rules you want to see. What, what's, in life, it's always good to know where you want to get before you start out walking there. So what's your definition of success? What would be an ideal arrangement for dealing with disease or dealing with cyber or dealing with the, uh, trade or dealing with the reality that nuclear weapons have proliferated? Then we can think about how we get, and get others to buy into it. We'd think about how we get from here to there, how you institutionalize it, what are the penalties for violation. I actually think there's, there's a lot of intellectual consistency in structuring these things, but I believe it begins first with some creative thinking about what's, okay, this is, this is for your 60,000, sorry. What's the regime? What is it? What are the, what are the arrangements? They love that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Do I get a mug now? Yeah, yeah you'll get a mug. <laughs> uh, but what is the regime? What are the rules and norms? And, and then we can think about how to institutionalize them. But in the first instance, we've got to figure out what is, what is something 
that protects our basic concerns and interests and is not going to be anathema to others, where, where is there potentially some give? But what, what, what is a World Order 2.0 in each of these global uh, areas? And how do we balance, coming back to something you talked about a few minutes, how do we balance the idea that we've got these global challenges, but we have national political realities? Take refugees, sorry to go on so long, but just say, okay, you can't have a situation where every country automatically accepts certain refugee inflows. Ain't gonna fly. We've seen it in our own country, we've seen it in Europe. So where can we agree on refugees? Well, we can agree maybe on the how refugees are treated. We can deal on economic help for refugees. Hopefully we can act to prevent refugees from becoming refugees, people from becoming refugees in the first place. We're gonna have to though accept that it's a national decision on whether and if so, how many refugees to to per permit to come into a country. That's that's still national. So I think part of the answer to this also is not getting too ambitious. You know, we there's a there's always a difference between global governance ANCE and global government. Uh, I just think we have to be extremely careful about dilutions of of sovereignty or transfers of sovereignty. I think that that's something of a red flag. But you know, I, I think. One of the reasons I think the book, A World in Disarray, is so important is because we have to start having the conversation. And in a lot of cases, we're not having the, the broader conversation about principles or national interests. We're saying, how do we react to this thing or how do we react to that thing? And that's the Wild West. And I think mm -hmm. one of the things that we learned and one of the reasons we ended up with the president at the creation moment at the end of World War II is that you don't want to resolve these issues conflict by conflict. You Absolutely. want to have set some ground rules, right? I mean, I think you wrote a book called the reluctant sheriff, which used that Wild West analogy. And the Wild West became the boom towns of California and so forth after the rule of law came in. And we need principle-based rule of law. We also need people who actually understand the issues. I mean, I think in the case of cyber, for example, we have a, a government where very, very, very few people actually understand them. It used to be you know, people would come up through the Council on Foreign Relations and other places learning the language of nuclear uh, weapons because that was a gating principle for getting into the national security side of the U.S. government. Now on cyber, we don't, we don't have the same thing happening. You, you guys are developing some things and some schools are, but when you go up to the highest levels of the—I mean, Mike Hayden, a top intelligence official, once said to me that he would go in and brief in the White House— and, and people looked at him like he was Rain Man. You know, they didn't understand what he was, you know, <laughs> what he was talking about. And and so I think part of it is is getting that training. Part of it, though, and I think one of the critical issues here, because you referred to it several times, is we have to do this or we have to do that. And 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 that is who is the we? And on cyber, for example, the we is public private. Most of the targets are private sector, most of the actors are private sector, and, and so forth. And this goes back to your earlier point, is that you need different kinds of coalitions, different types of mixes of countries and actors in order to you know, ar arrive at a workable solution, because in some, the country's going to be cut out altogether. Absolutely. And again, whether it's domestically or internationally, we've got to become more open or more flexible in who, in who participates. I think, using cyber as an example, we've got a real, we in this case, this country, but other countries as well, have a challenge in developing a cadre of people who understand not just the technology, but also some of the politics and economics and legal issues. In my experience, there's almost no one who has it all, and you've got to gather people from the different silos into the room, which is the second best 
solution that was overcome in the arms control era when you had military people, scientists, mathematicians, foreign policy types, but ultimately we produced a generation of people who, you know, you didn't have to know how to make a nuclear weapon, but you understood it well enough to talk intelligently uh, about the policy. We're not there on a lot of these more technical issues, uh, which is a uh, which is a real uh, challenge. One other thing more broadly, which is, in a funny sort of way, people like you and me, I think, I won't speak for you, for me, we assume away the problem, which is we've also got to make the basic argument better that all this matters. That's true. We just can't assume that there's automatic buy-in. I just think that we, we've got to do better at showing the, how the stuff that happens out there affects what happens here. Enough so more Americans will get educated about it and try to care about it whether as citizens or even professionally, to understand that, again, if nothing is truly local anymore, then they have a stake in how these developments beyond America's borders play out, not as a humanitarian gesture, but as, as a gesture of self-interest. Well, right, and we have to go past the Eastern elite, take our word for it. You know, and we, and, you know, we, I mean, I was part of the Clinton administration team that was going out selling globalization. And we would say, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. And we came up with a bunch of formulations and we minimized the dislocations. And when you are dislocated, when you lose your job, you don't care about economic theory. You right. care about where your job is coming well, from. One thing on that, you're 100% right. The old idea of trade adjustment assistance. I actually think now we got to broaden it. It's got to be economic adjustment assistance, and it's got to be everything from economic floors and wage insurance, education, retraining, portability of benefits. But that's the kind of conversation, or we're going to lose. We need to have, or, or we're simply going to lose a big tranche of our own people. Right, and 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 that's where we are, and that's going to bring me to my my last question because in the last election campaign, there was a lot of playing to the instinctive fears of the American people. And there's, you know, that's natural. That's what happens in campaigns. Mm -hmm. The problem that arises from it is that sometimes your instinctive reaction, which is solve my problem now, is not in your long-term interest. So you can lead to a protectionist foreign policy, which ultimately is economically damaging. Or you can lead to a president-elect who has said, America first. Now, the way to make American interests advance may actually be something that acknowledges that 95% of the people in the world live outside our borders, that the economic future of the country is inextricably linked to the future of the rest of the world. Um, and, 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 you know, with the other component of it was like playing to let's have an enemy, you know, and let's make the enemy the Chinese or let's make the enemy somebody else. Because I'm angry and I, I want to, I or let's go after the Mexicans or let's go after refugees. And, and that's all understandable. But to get to the next phase, which is some sensible reaction to that, um, we have to communicate, as you just said. But what I'd like to wrap up with is, say you are sitting down in a room with, with uh, Donald Trump, and, or you're sitting down with some of his senior officials, Tillerson or Mattis or whomever, and they say, okay, we have five minutes. What are the three things we really need to achieve to get to this world order 2.0 in the course of the next four years? Where should we focus? Should we focus on institution building? Should we focus on solving problems at home? Is it a communications issue? I, I, clearly, there's a world of issues here, but you can't do everything at once. So what are the priorities? One would be we're dedicating significant time to the relationship with China. And that would argue both for what we don't do and do. I would not 
put the question of one versus multiple Chinas on the table. Instead, I would work with China on dealing with the proliferation challenge of North Korea and more broadly on what we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes. I would make that probably uh, priority number one. Priority number two would be the Middle East to right-size American foreign policy in the Middle East and not to try to make the Middle East whole again or democratic, but to deal with the terrorist threat and the humanitarian threat and to assume that for quite a while, Mr. Rand and Mr. McNally's Middle East is not going to be the reality. It's, it's going to be, so accept the limits there, but, but do something like that. That's a place where you want to limit the damage, but avoid the twin ends of trying to remake it or washing your hands of it. In Europe, I'd think about, is, is there anything we could do to help the European project stay alive? I'm not sure as Americans there's too much uh, we can do, but we've got to try to tackle the question of Russian uh, behavior. And I would, I would invest in that. Because diplomatically, that would involve acknowledging it was a problem to begin with. Russia could be a real spoiler, and we've got to uh, invest, but also be tougher there. I would also uh, remilitarize parts of NATO. We demilitarized too much of NATO after the end of the Cold War, and that would mean reintroducing greater numbers of forces into, say, the uh, Baltics. Uh, order requires not just a shared sense of uh, what I call, or others have called, legitimacy, but also a balance of power. And we have to reestablish a balance of power there. If I'm allowed a fourth thing, it would be domestic. And the president who I use as a parallel here is FDR. He had a very reluctant country, and he had to gradually take them by the hand in the direction of greater global involvement. And that was the lead up to World War II and Lend-Lease and things like that, even before the Japanese attack. I actually, what I would talk to the president, the secretary, secretary of defense, is a certain percentage of your time has to be spent domestically to sell the foreign policy and America's involvement in the world to the American people, to draw the connections, to make them see why it's in their self-interest, to care about these issues, to support certain kinds of policy, to essentially bring home the point that what happens out there affects life here. And until that connection is drawn, then I, I think it's going to be hard for the American people to be, to, for leaders to rally the American people around the sort of sustained uh, foreign policy uh, we need as a country. That's an excellent point. It's actually a, also a good point to sort of draw this to a close. You know, the new president of the United States has said that he is an opponent of political correctness. And so, you know, keeping in that spirit, I would say that one of the subtexts of what you're talking about is, I, I could be best characterized from a Hillary Clinton slogan, which is stronger together, that we have to find alliances and partners in the world in order to remake the rules and the order and the structure of the world. We have to go to the alliances that work and make them work better, and we have to go to the places where there's potential tension and and talk. I'd say two things to that. One is uh, unilateralism has real limits. There's not a whole lot in this world we can accomplish by ourselves. The world can't accomplish a whole lot without us, but we can't do a, a whole lot uh, by ourselves. The others, I'd probably be a little bit more wary of alliances because alliances presume a degree of predictability and structure. But I do think we're going to need partnerships, and we're we're going to have. There might be different partners to deal with different challenges at different times in different places. But we are going to need to find partners, and that's got to be a recurring theme of uh, of American foreign policy. Right. And refresh the partnerships because in the, in the Middle East. We, we need to reexamine that. In the Asia-Pacific, there's no way to counterbalance China without India being in the picture, without you know, possibly a new quad of India, Australia, Japan, 
No, it gets, back, it gets back to something you said before, which is it's now 70-odd years since the end of World War II to the last creative moment in American foreign policy. We just can't presume that we can extend the shelf life of what we've got. Some things can maybe be adapted, but other things we're going to have to reimagine, and we're going to have to come up with some new arrangements with, with new entities to, to make things work for this era. Right, and that's why I think this book, A World in Disarray, is so important, and this moment uh, is so ripe for the book. All these ER nerds that are out there listening to this thing, our whole community, many of them are younger, and many of them are going to face this as the great challenge of their lives in terms of foreign policy. They're going to have to identify the principles, identify the new mechanisms, identify the new partnerships, and do this. And this is not the work of an administration. It's the work of a whole period of time. It's the work of a generation. In fact, you know, I'll tell you a little story here. I, I just had lunch with Bob Hormatz, our mutual friend, who was the Undersecretary of State, and he talked about when he was 25 years old, coming to the Council on Foreign Relations and coming up to the library upstairs. And John McCloy, one of the great <laughs> founders of U.S. foreign policy, um, was up there. And he was in his 80s. And the Hormats went up to him and said, hi, I'd like to shake your hand. And, and, and McCloy said, sit down here, young man. And they started to talk. And essentially, McCloy, who was in his 80s, and Hormats, I guess, was 25 years old at the time, McCloy said, you know, my mission in life right now is to work with young people. This was in the, in the 60s, I guess. Mm -hmm. He said, to work with young people are going to have to invent the future of foreign policy. They teach me, but I also want to encourage them because we are at a period of massive change. And I think that one of the things that books like this does is it, in, they inspire people to think in a fresh way. And, and, th and the best thing about a book like this is that it inspires people to go and say, what can, what can happen next? What can we do? You're generous for saying that. I, I dedicated this book to my, the five teachers who were most important to me. And these were the people who inspired me both to get into the field, but they had more to do with the, the shaping or framing of my approach. Indeed, in writing this book, I went back and reread a lot of the early work of uh, Headley Bull and others. So I will feel great if uh, some of your listeners you know, pick up this book and it stimulates them, whether intellectually or professionally, uh, to go down this path, that would be, uh, that would be great. It, we guarantee you a bump of dozens of sales as a result of our engaged <laughs> listenership. Um, but I thank you for um, allowing us here into your studio to talk about this book. And I encourage everybody to go out there, get it, read it. Think about it. Think about what the next set of ideas are. And we look forward to having you all join us again on a future episode of The ER. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, David. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.